I came home thinking, man, I just stepped over something. Trust. Trust is the foundation. And what I realized was when I was helping companies, whether as an employee or helping companies from the outside, build innovation, this is like starting to build a building from the second floor. You don't start with the second floor. The first floor is culture, but the foundation is trust. When you have trust, you have the right culture, you have the right culture, you have innovation, you have innovation, you have the financial results you want to get, but it all starts with trust. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Yoram Solomon and dive deep into hats three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur, as we get schooled on one of the most important subjects for entrepreneurs, trust. Dr. Yoram Solomon has researched trust for more than a decade. He published 16 books, including The Book of Trust, the most comprehensive research-based book ever written about trust, he authored over 300 articles for Inc. Magazine, Innovation Excellence, Directors and Boards, and was named one of the top 20 global thought leaders on culture by Thinkers360. And if that wasn't enough, Yoram is a two-time TEDx speaker and the host of the Trust Show podcast now in its fourth season. He's a husband, a father, an entrepreneur, and now a friend. If you think you know what trust is, you might be surprised because trust is not what you think it is. So, if you trust me and you're ready to learn from one of the most interesting and trustworthy individuals I know of, then let's welcome Yoram to the Seven Hats. Yoram, welcome to the Seven Hats. Thank you for having me, Yuval. Oh, you said my name so well. I wish I could say my name as well as you can say my, my name. Anyway, that's a different topic. <laughs> I can tell you right off the bat that this will be one of my favorite topics, and that's trust. It's everything. Uh, it's the foundation of our civilization. The fact that we have no idea what is to happen to us at any moment. You know, we're on a globe in the middle of space. We're spinning a thousand miles per hour and have zero guarantees. Yet, we manage to get up in the morning and take care of our business, you know, trusting that our drive to work, that the oncoming car won't crash into us, or that our boss will pay us each paycheck, that we will be home for dinner with the family, right? Everything is predicated on trusting the universe, people, and ourselves. So you can imagine how excited I am to be speaking with a world-renowned expert on trust. You literally wrote the books on trust. <laughs> you have a lot of books. <laughs> but before we get to all the golden nuggets, I know that the seven hatters 
will want to hear a bit about your backstory and upbringing so that we can really understand, right, how you became first interested in this topic because you started as an entrepreneur and an engineer. You had a whole bunch of stuff, which we'll talk about. I, I want to hear that story. And then transitioned over to a world-renowned expert on this specific subject. So, Yoram, where were you born and how was your childhood like? I was born in Tel Aviv, just south of Tel Aviv, a city called Yafo, which is part of the Tel Aviv uh, metropolitan uh, area. You know, one of my first memories is actually 1973, October 6, 1973. This is the Yom Kippur War. Uh, you know, the, the Israeli Defense Forces uh, laid on the laurels of the Six-Day War in 1967, which I don't remember. I was two years old. But in uh, 73, I, I actually remember the third day of that war. I remember it because I remember the uh, Israeli Minister of Defense saying this is the end of the state of Israel. This is mm. going to be the end of the state of Israel. You know, a funny story, I'll, I'll move forward for a second. In 2009, I got my U.S. citizenship. And as part of the interview, the interviewer asked me, when was your first exposure to the U.S.? Because I was born in Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, when was your first exposure to the U.S.? And I started thinking back, and I realized that it was that day. It was that day because, you know, think about it, an eight-year-old, I'm, I'm thinking that this is the end of my state and what does it mean? And, and you know, all the stories that you hear about what the end is going to be like, what, what would an eight-year-old think? And then I always loved airplanes and I'm hmm. hearing this huge, huge airplane going overhead. And I looked up because it sounded like nothing I ever heard before. And I look up and I see a huge plane. It was bigger than a 747. I've never seen a plane like this. It was ugly as I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know what words I can use on your podcast or not. You but can use I, whatever words you want, It my friend. was <laughs> as ugly as hell. And it was gray. It had tons of landing gear wheels. And under the wing, I saw the, the writing, U.S. Air Force. There was a Galaxy C-5A that was sent by President Nixon at the time to help with parts for F-4 Phantoms and A-4 Skyhawks. That was my first exposure to the U.S. The funny thing is, if I go back to 2009, I'm sitting at the interview to become a citizen, and the interviewer, he just dropped everything he was doing. He was just listening to the story. And at some point, he said, I served in the U.S. Air Force on board the C-5A Galaxy. Wow. Anyway, so that was the moment when I decided my focus in life was going to be in developing navigation systems for missiles. Wow. At 13, I went to a, a technical school uh, in Israel and I started learning electronics. And I worked as an engineer, as an electronics computer science engineer. That was my first degree for many, many years, for I would say more than 20 years. Let me ask you a question. So, eight years old. I don't believe Google Maps existed. I don't believe even when Hertz came out with Never Lost System, I don't even know where GPS was being utilized. How did you start thinking about navigation systems at eight years old? Where was that coming from? Well, uh, first of all, the, uh, the GPS uh, satellites, as far as I know, were sent four years later. 
the first satellite was actually launched four years later. So there was no GPS. But uh, as I said, I was fascinated with airplanes. And one of the things, the reason that Galaxy came over with bringing parts for F-4 Phantoms and A-4 Skyhawks was because the Israeli Air Force was not ready for surface-to-air missiles. Surface-to-air missiles that were shot at them from uh, around the Suez Canal and, and up in Syria. We were not ready for that. And it made me realize that the ability of missiles to correctly find their targets. And, and you know, if, if you start reading more about the Vietnam War, for example, in 1973 is pretty much the, the end uh, of the Vietnam War. Uh, the F-4 Phantom, when it came into service, only had eight missiles, no gun. The, this wow. was the first time they took off the gun. And those missiles, uh, you were lucky if you hit, got a missile hit with one out of seven missiles. So wow. that that attracted me as an area. How do we improve the quality? Now, th- those missiles, they, they don't take uh, air-to-air missiles, for example, and, and ground-to-air missiles. They don't use GPS. All they use is either heatsink or active or passive radar. Uh, so that was, that was what I f- was fascinated by. I was going to help develop that. And, and I already picked up the company, Rafael, which is uh, a company that develops, uh, by the way, some of the best air-to-air missiles today are developed by Rafael in Israel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a lot in common. I was born in Tel Aviv. I was born in 1973. So it's, there's, a, there's a lot of commonality here. But what did your parents do? Uh, and where are they from? Is it first-generation Israel for you, or did they come from somewhere else? I'm the first-generation Israeli. I'm the first-generation college graduate. Yeah, they, uh, my, you know, there, there is a whole story about how they got to Israel. My mother got to Israel. She was actually on a uh, refugee ship uh, coming from Romania in uh, 1947 that was intercepted by the British and uh, went over to uh, Cyprus. The, the, they were in a refugee camp in Cyprus. My father uh, came to Israel in 1950. He was, he, he never went to high school. Because you know this was 1942 during the uh, during World War II, his father, when he finished uh, elementary school, his father said, "We don't have money and and to send you to high school, so get a job." Uh, and he started as a an intern, uh, an apprentice, probably a better word, uh, for a clockmaker, and he was a clockmaker for the next 52 years until the day he died. He was a wow. clockmaker. He came in. Uh, 1950, he got recruited to the Israeli Defense Forces, drafted, really, uh, to the Israeli Defense Forces. And they asked him, so what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a clockmaker. Well, then uh, you're going to be an aircraft mechanic. And I don't know if this is where I got my my passion for aviation from him. You're going to be an aircraft mechanic. There is a very special airplane in the Israeli Air Force that I believe is still in flying condition. It was one of the first Spitfires that came to Israel. It was painted black all over with a red tail. You may know this as the black Spitfire. It was flown by, the at that time, the general of the Israeli Air Force, uh, Ezra Weizmann, who later became Israel's president. My father was the mechanic on that airplane. Wow, that's awesome. And so what did, obviously, since you're the first generation educated, per se, uh, individual in the family, what did they want for you when you were growing up? They wanted me to get a job. They wanted me to get uh, something solid. 
And and electronics at that time sounded and still is electronics and computer sciences is is where where the money is, right? And so that's what they wanted me to get. And I remember right before I went to my military service, there was the ability to get your college degree before the military. Uh-huh. And but but it was limited. So you could only get the first one or two years, get an associate degree. And, yeah. and I opted for that plan. And my father was not happy. He said, I want you to get uh, I want you to get like a bachelor's, a, a university degree, a real university uh, degree. And, and, you know, it was really, really unfortunate that, uh, so I, di- I didn't get that. I, I only got the associate degree before my military service. After my military service, and I served five years uh, in inactive duty, after my military service, I went, I, I remember I, I had the, the equivalent of a GMAT, SAT in Israel, they're, they're all combined. And I got a very, very high score. And at that time, I, I just married my wife. It was 1994. Hmm. And uh, she assumed that I'm going to take this, go back to college, and get a degree in electronics or computer sciences. And I said, you know, with all of the work that I've done and what I know now, a degree is not going to give me anything other than a piece of paper. I want to study something that's really interesting. Uh, and I applied to the toughest school to get into in Israel, and that was Tel Aviv University's law school. So I applied to law school, and I didn't tell my parents because I knew it was a long shot, and uh, you know I I didn't want to see their disappointment, especially my father, who, remember, never even went to high school. I got admitted to law school seven days after he passed away. And since then, I got my law degree, I got my MBA, and I got my PhD. Which I'm, I'm really hoping that that he can see it. I'm sure he can see it. I know he can see it. I got goosebumps every as soon as you said it. So I know he's speaking through me to you. So tell me a little bit about because this is notorious. I I've I haven't been to the Israeli army. I I dodged the army because I was a nine years old when I left <laughs> Israel. They weren't taking nine year olds back then. How was that experience for you? I served in the paratroopers brigade, believe it or not, never jumped out of a plane. And, you know, there's this phrase that that paratroopers get asked, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? So I need to tell you that, one, I'm a pilot. And two, as a pilot, and I say this with authority, there isn't such a thing as a perfectly good airplane. (laughs) None of them is perfectly good. But... uh, I joined the military in when I was 17 and a half. My parents actually had to sign to let me join the military because we were in a war. This was 1982. Uh, the war started in June. I joined the military in July. I joined the military, and, and it does give you a very interesting perspective of, on life, which I, I would like to think that eventually did affect who I am today and, and, and my, my interest in trust. Because trust, you know, you take trust to a different level. It's, you know, this is not about uh, trusting people with giving them $10 or $1,000. This is literally and voluntarily, you trust other people with your life. I mean, the, the other person in your platoon or, or your company has to be in a certain place and do something very, very certain because otherwise you're dead. There's no, you know, there, there's no middle ground there. Wow. So you have all your degrees, you know, amazing achievement, and you're a doctor. 
but at least according to your daughter, not the one, well, not one of those useful kinds of doctors. Ah, right? you, you heard that story before. Yes. yes. When, when her friend asked her, uh, are you, uh, so is your daddy right after my, my doctoral graduation, uh, she asked her, uh, so your daddy is a doctor. And Shira thinks about this for a second. She goes, yeah, but not the useful kind. <laughs> I love that. I had to, I had to put it in. So, so you have a PhD and your dissertation was about creativity and startups versus mature corporate environments. And yeah. this is my passion, obviously, startups. Let's start by learning why you decided to become a doctor in the first place. And what did you learn researching this fascinating question, which ultimately led you to becoming a trust expert? But I think you also started, you were in the corporate world for a little bit too. So how did that go? Did you start a, a job after the PhD? and then kind of decided to go on your own, become an entrepreneur? And then what did you learn about this subject that led you to trust? Actually, the, the, uh, right after the military, I joined a company and I worked there as an R&D manager, or I, I really managed the entire R&D department. It started with me, but by the time I left them, I had 20 people in, in the R&D department. It was an electronics company uh, in the security space. And uh, after seven years, I left to actually start my first startup company. I started mm -hmm. a startup company, was in the area of uh, what we call today voice over IP. You know, it's funny the way we're having this conversation completely over the internet. Back yeah. in 95, that didn't exist. No. We only started. The internet was not strong enough. The connection to the internet was a dial-up internet. In 96, I filed my first patent on the ability of two devices that are not connected to the internet to exchange information over the public network, a telephone network, and find each other uh, over the internet. And at that time, placing a call from Israel to the US was over $4 a minute, over $4 a minute. And so having that internet was a major, uh, major opportunity for international calls. So I developed that first product so that that was what I did after that first stint with uh, uh, with a company. I started my own startup. I, I held it for about three years. Uh, at three years, several things have happened. One of which that was major was a a dramatic drop in the cost of international calls. The switch from uh, switch telephone networks to packet switch telephone network mm -hmm. um, that that dropped the prices. Other things, we were trying to raise a third round of investment, couldn't raise the third round of investment. And, and I'm going to tell you a painful story here. We, we are fascinated by success stories, entrepreneurial success stories. Let me tell you about a failure. I failed I love with it. that first company. I failed to raise third round of investment. I failed to develop a product that was easy enough for the target market and so on. I, I learned a lot from those failures. But when, when it was time to close the company, you know, typically what you would do is the company would file for bankruptcy. This is why you start a limited liability company. One of the things, by the way, that drives me crazy, I am an entrepreneurial prof entrepreneurship professor uh, at, at SMU, and now I'm, I have both entrepreneurship and corporate entrepreneurship classes. And one of the things that drives me crazy is when my students uh, decide that they're going to choose an LLC or a C-Corp, so that they can protect their assets. And it drives me crazy for two reasons. One of them is that's not what you want to write to your investors, that I, I want to protect my assets. 
But the other reason is because of how I closed my own company. Because the easiest thing would be it was a limited liability company. Nobody, the, the creditors could not come after me because everything I've done, I've done in good faith and under the company's name. But when it was time to close, we owed, I think, uh, about fifty, sixty thousand dollars. And what I did was I called the creditors and I gave them personal checks, my personal checks against the company checks. And and uh, I remember one of them, we owed him twenty five thousand dollars. He got really upset. He said, uh, no, that you're going to have to pay me now. I said, look, you know, the, really the way to do this is you're insured. You have biz- business insurance and this is how it is. You know, the company shuts down bankruptcy. That's it. You don't get access to your money. I'm giving you checks for the same amounts for the same dates. Six months later, when the last check had cleared, he called me and he said, nobody has ever done that before. I said, I don't get it. You know that you could have just taken the company through bankruptcy and not spend another what ended up being $50,000, $60,000. I had to sell my apartment just, just to cover the debt that the company had, even though legally I didn't have to, but I did. And the reason was because every morning since then, when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I don't have a problem with what I see. I love that. Um, love that. So that's, you know, we, we we have this limited liability. I would never stand behind it. And and I, I really hope that an entrepreneur would never stand behind it and just say, you know, I, I am the company. The company is me. And I'm going to conduct myself with the highest level of integrity. And if this this company fails, I'm not just going to you know file it away as that was a failure and and that's it, uh, and it's not my problem anymore. But, but treat it as if it it is your problem. I love that. You know, from for me, I had the same situation. My first business failed. I was in a million dollars worth of debt. We had to give up my wife's condo. Uh, in West Hollywood, uh, Los Angeles, which she's been basically living there for decades. We were sitting in front of bankruptcy attorneys and I turned to my wife and I said, no, I'm not doing it because I put us through this. Now, I don't know how the future is going to look like. I have no, if I have to drive a limo for $10 an hour to prove to the universe that I'll do whatever, which is what happened and go find another job with my bank, do whatever it takes. But I think the lesson here for the seven hatters is the bankruptcy law is there to protect you if all else fails. But if you can, you should try to pay your debts because you put, it's not the creditor's fault. It's not the banker's fault that you couldn't get the business to a successful enterprise. And a lot of businesses fail. So you know, you go in knowing that there's a good chance of you failing in business anyway. So what I did, like you, I called the bankers and I said, listen, you're giving me a 0% APR. Okay, this was back when it was 29%, you know, APR, zero APR, because if you don't, I will go bankrupt. So they, we negotiated deals between zero and 2%. And over the next decade, I paid off every penny of that debt, just like you. And I think that's, that's the, there's so many lessons in that. And there's a trust lesson in that. By the way, you, you know what the difference between us is in, in those stories? Hmm. That, that you were going after, I'm going to drive a limo and I wanted to drive a truck. <laughs> you went to drive a truck? Yes. I, I still want to drive a truck. Oh, my God. Well, okay. Well, I'm sure you can now. 18-wheeler. <laughs> sure so, yeah, I can buy it, but... <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, all right. So you've, your business failed, and 
what next? What happens after that? Well, that was just about the time when uh, both my wife and I said, uh, we, we want to move to the U.S. So my wife was thinking about moving to the U.S. I thought to myself, one of the hardest things in running a technology company in Israel is that your market is you know, 24-hour flights and airports away. And you can't just have a meeting, a 20-minute meeting, and you certainly can't have a meeting get canceled on you after you made that trip over to the U.S. So I told my wife, you know what? If I want to continue in high tech, which I did, we're going to have to move to, I apologize to any of the listeners, to the 408 area code, Silicon Valley. (laughs) So I knew a tiny little company in Silicon Valley that I've done business with them in the past. Actually, in the first company that that I worked for, uh, they wanted to acquire them, and I was sent over there to to kind of manage the acquisition and manage them post-acquisition. But uh, I also worked with them. They became friends, the two founders, tiny little technology company. What's the name of it? Uh, Voyager Technologies. And they were a radio semiconductor technology company. And that was right about the time when the FCC created Rule 15247 and allowed the use of spread spectrum, which is a radio technology that was up until then only used for military applications, allowed them to be used for uh, for civilian applications with the main benefit is range. If you think about the cordless telephones, the 49 megahertz cordless telephones, and everything else at that point, range was very limited because power was very limited. And they allowed, because of this spread spectrum technology, they allowed higher power, which means higher data rate, higher range. All of a sudden, two standards were worked on. One was uh, known today as, you, you may have heard of that, uh, or maybe one or two of your listeners have heard of that, Bluetooth, and the other is Wi-Fi. Both of them were created in 99. We moved to the U.S. in 98. I joined this tiny little company. Of course, by the way, the week we decided to move to the U.S. is the week we find that my wife is pregnant with our first daughter. So uh, both uh, both our daughters were born in California, so they are foreigners. Nice. Uh, but <laughs> at least they're considered foreigners here in Texas. But... Uh, yeah, so we moved there. I joined this tiny little company. The company was working on things that are very, very vertical. So, you know, underground gas tank leak detection detection wireless transmitters. I mean, you can't even think of that application. And uh-huh. so they worked on things like that. And I joined and I said, look, there are these two standards that are being worked on. Wi-Fi still didn't have the name Wi-Fi. Bluetooth did. Uh, it started under the name Bluetooth by Ericsson. But we have a technology that can be applicable to these two markets. The thing is, this was the first time that the company was going to make an investment in something that doesn't have an immediate return. So it's not a project. It's not something where your customer is paying for it. It's it's actually an investment in technology. We made that investment. Sure enough, both standards came out uh, late 99. January 26th of 2000, I negotiated and sold that company uh, for $21.9 million to PCTEL. Wow. And it was right before the market crashed. So, I mean, think about a company with seven employees being sold for $22 million. That's awesome. I like to think, you remember the, the previous story of how I closed my company? Yes. I, I'm a big believer in do good things, good things will happen to you. 
yes. and you're not going to see the link. It's somewhere up there that this link happens. I believe that my success with that company came because of the way I closed the first one. Wow. That's amazing. And so then what happened? So did you, when was your PhD? Was that after? Oh yeah. We're, we're not there yet. Now, now I'm doing my MBA uh, on the side, sold the company to PCTEL, started rising in PCTEL. By then the market crashes and uh, we decided, uh, I, I decided, you know, I was going at that point at PCTEL, I was the vice president of the advanced communications business unit. Uh, but I needed to acquire companies, uh, and uh, the CEO said, look, the market had just crashed. We're putting the brakes on every investment. We're not making any investments. Do what you can with what you have. It was very limited, and and I was very fascinated by Wi-Fi. And so I decided, I started looking at what are the companies that are leading in Wi-Fi, and one of them was Texas Instruments. Mm. And I said, uh, I, I reached out to them. Uh, they tried to recruit me to their DSL product line. I, I said, no, you know, there's another story at PCTEL of how I became the product line director for the DSL product line and actually eventually shut it down because we were building the wrong product. Mm -hmm. and, and it was really hard to get to the point of convincing the executive team and the board that the right thing is to shut it down because you know we're we're just going to keep on pouring good money after bad but at that time i decided i wanted to continue in wi-fi ti came after me for dsl i went after them for wi-fi they had they had made an acquisition in 2000 uh in in the area of wi-fi of course at that time it was just called 802.11b and I joined them in Santa Rosa. So uh, my commute to work was 99.9 .9 miles each wow, way. Wow, wow. But considering the fact that uh, typically uh, I, uh, my commute was to, the, uh, to San Jose International, by the way, the namesake of that uh, airport just passed away this last week. Norman Mineta, the uh, Secretary of Transportation uh, back uh, during the Bush, uh, the Bush administration. Uh, Bush too. Wow. But uh, anyway, so my commute was mostly there. But even when I went to the office, it was a beautiful commute. You you know California, you know North yes. California, Highway 280, mountains. Uh, Gorgeous. You know, mist coming from over the mountains, from the ocean. Uh, halfway to my office, the exact halfway point was uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge. Who has the Golden Gate Bridge on their daily commute twice? Wow. Wow, so wow, wow. I did that and and I started in, in actually in TI in that business unit that I joined. I moved them into a new area which was um, a mobile Wi-Fi. This is how we got Wi-Fi in in phones today. Yeah. And and you know, in 2000, so <laughs> when I joined TI, my wife asked me if we we're gonna have to move to Dallas. And I said, Oh no, that's not gonna happen. She said, <laughs> How do you know that? I said, because it's hardly anybody knows me other than my boss who's there. Nobody else knows me. She said, but what if they want you to come over and become a general manager of a business unit that's headquartered in, in Dallas? And I told her, I, I don't see that happening. One year, five months later, I get a call. Uh, we are merging two technologies. We're creating this, the uh, Consumer Electronics Connectivity Business Unit. It ended up being a $100 million business unit, and we want you to run it. 
but you're going to have to move to Dallas. So (laughs) that's how we moved to Dallas. Uh, In 04, so this was in in 2003, that's when we moved to Plano, actually. In uh, 04, I decided that it's time to take my education to the next step. I'm I'm curious. I always want to know new things. And so I got admitted to a PhD program. I think it was probably two weeks later, I woke up one morning, 4 a.m., cold sweat, thinking, I have a job that is so stressful. I, I don't have time. I have two daughters. A- at that time, they were three and five. When do I have time to, to go through a PhD? So that was at 4 a.m. By 7 a.m., I filled all the paperwork to get out of the program, and I got out of the program. And in, I managed to move myself. So, so here is another interesting story. I, I was in a leadership position in 2004. Uh, I was sent to the Center for Creative Leadership in Colorado Springs to undergo a program on leadership, on how to become a strategic leader. Now, I was always a strategist, uh, not always a leader. Uh, and, and I still don't consider myself a leader. And so I, I'm up there in Colorado Springs, and after a week of an amazing program, it was an amazing program, other participants, top people in the top brands that you know. And I'm sitting Friday morning with a psychologist uh, where she's asking questions around. She said, you know, I want to frame our conversation around the question. And her question was, are you a startup person or a large company person? Mm. And I thought, well, that's a good question because I, I had startups. And at the time I was working for Texas Instruments, which was anything but a startup. Yeah, But there was another question that bothered me even more. And that was, am I a leader or an individual contributor? Mm. And she said, that's a good question. Let's, let's talk about that. We spent the next two hours. Then it was Friday. We had our graduation that afternoon. Flew back home. Knew what I had to do Monday morning. Monday morning, walked into my boss's office. And I said, I don't want to run the business anymore. Mm. And wow. she said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be the strategist uh, for that, that business unit. Uh, actually for the group of three business units that I was running, only one of them, she was running all three. I want to be the strategist. I want to find the next big thing for us in connectivity. And she said, uh, like, like any good boss, the first, her first reaction was, uh, no, <laughs> and, but you know, I kept on pushing for a week and after a week, she said, who's going to run the business said, you know, two of the, uh, my direct reports, I've prepared them from day one. To, uh, to take over my job. And uh, I think both of them are ready. And, and I'm not going away. I'm going to be here so I can mentor them if needed. I, I don't consider myself a, a great leader. Uh, and that's what happened. And, and the first thing was I asked myself, what's the future of connectivity? And that, by the way, that led to the first book that I wrote, Bowling with a Crystal Ball. Because really, th- that set of questioning and how I navigated that through industry is what gave us USB 3. Wow, that's crazy. So you're pretty successful in the business world. How does one transition to a PhD and tell us about that dissertation and yeah. how it led to the topic that we're going to talk about trust? Well, so uh, 2007, I, well, now I'm a strategist and uh, 
all of, uh, you know, you don't have the operational emergencies of a $100 million business unit that all of a sudden has components that Apple uses and that they have a line down and they stopped producing iPods because one, they suspect one of our components, components is, is problematic. It's a different set of emergencies that you have when you run a business than when you run strategy. Because when you run strategy, what's the future of connectivity? Your, your emergencies are seven years away. So I thought, you know, now life is a little more settled down and uh, I think I can go for that PhD. So I went for the PhD and uh, I started doing the, the uh, started going through the program. The, the thing that I was most that I enjoyed the most was research classes. So I take every freaking research class that they had in that university. Uh, and it was funny because I got a call from the uh, academic advisor who at some point said, you know, you got to decide what your topic, your dissertation topic is going to be. And, and I said, I already know what it is. Well, then you may want to find a mentor. And I, I already have a mentor. And well, you may want to consult with your mentor on what your what your methodology is going to be, specifically quantitative or qualitative. I said, I already know what it's going to be. And so, okay, let me be blunt with you. <laughs> you took for next semester, you took both quantitative and qualitative classes. Doesn't look like you know what you're doing. And I said, Well, you should have started, you should have opened with that because I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm taking every freaking research class you have because I'm going to be done with my dissertation, with my research here. I'm going to be done with this degree. I don't want to find out 10 years down the road that I want to do a new piece of research because I love doing research, that I want to do another piece of research, but I didn't take the classes for this kind. So I took every uh, type that they had. And so we're getting to the point where uh, I, I created a good relationship with my mentor. Uh, before he was my mentor, he was uh, a professor of mine in two of the classes, two of the research classes I took, and we kind of really hit it off. And uh, and then at, at some point, I needed to come up with a topic for my dissertation, and he actually was listed as unavailable for another student for dissertation because there is a limit. And he said, "You know what? Just submit the application, put my name, I'll talk to them." So he kind of got me to be his. His student uh, outside of uh, the the regular process, so I need to come up with the topic. There are, you know, th there's something that they say about somebody who gets, you know, after you're done with the research, you have to defend it, and there is a bar that you need to cross, and there is a name, you know, those who who don't cross the bar, they're called ABD all by dissertation, and. <laughs> But there is a name for those who barely cross the bar. You know, they they, they barely manage to to defend their dissertation. Not very, very successful. Barely made. You know what they're called? Doctors. doctors. They're called doctors. I love it. Because it's really binary. It's yeah. you defend it or you don't defend it. So yes. you hear that. The second thing that you hear is that a good dissertation is a done dissertation. Dissertation. Uh, because uh, as it turns out, 25 to 31% of those who start the dissertation ever finish it. it it's a lot of self-discipline, a lot of issues. You're on your own there for what may end up being six to nine months or, or two years or, or even more. For me, it was two years because I took a pretty tough topic. Anyway, wow. so you have this in mind. And, you know, with all due respect, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm aiming pretty low with the topic. So I'm on the phone with Cordy, my mentor. and. I'm coming up with topics and he keeps shooting them down. 
he he shoots one after the other, and and I'm getting pretty frustrated. And uh, the thing is, he said to me, Yoram, I want you to come up with a topic that's going to improve your life and the lives of others, which is, you know, the opposite of a good dissertation. It's a done dissertation. <laughs> I keep on coming up with ideas. He keeps shooting them down. I'm getting more and more frustrated. And at that point, Cody asked me a question that I consider to be pivotal to my professional life. Mm-hmm. Cody asked me, Yoram, what pisses you off? Oh. And I wanted to say, well, you, <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with the topic and you don't let me. But the words that came out of my mouth, Yuval, just like that, were, why are people so much more creative when they work in startups than when they work in large, mature companies? Oh, love that. Because I worked in startups. I was, at the time, working for Texas Instruments, a company that with 35,000 employees was anything but a startup. And I could tell, feel the difference. And what I didn't understand was why. So that's how it started. And so the why became really the trust aspect because employees in startups trusted the startup leaders to really guide them and nurture them versus the corporate world, which I lived in for many years, stifled you so many times that you just did not want to go out uh, outside the box. And you were just coming into work and doing your your thing. So that's, is that where that thought of, wait, maybe it's trust. Maybe that's where. Not that fast. Okay. Not that fast. At that point, I narrowed it down to vertical components, horizontal components, vertical components. And, and you know, as I simplified and simplified, and this is now we're post dissertation. I already know, uh, you know, people ask me, what's the answer? And, and that was another annoying question because what do you mean, what the end, what's the answer? I spent two years, I interviewed people. In four continents, you're asking me for a what the the dissertation was 348 pages. You're asking me for a one paragraph, but I realized that I can answer it with two words: innovation culture. Mm. It comes down to culture. And this is where I came up with the vertical horizontal. Really, a, a few years later, I came up with the book. Uh, this was my seventh book. Culture starts with you, not your boss. And in that book, I, I kind of put this very simple model. Where I said, you know, on the vertical axis between a leader and a follower, you got leader gives follower autonomy. Not autonomy to choose what mountain you're going to climb. Teresa Amabil has the best definition for for autonomy. Don't don't let them choose which mountain to climb. Let them decide how to climb the mountain. So that's autonomy. Accountability is, is my willingness to take risk and try things because I'm doing it for for the future of the company, for the better of the company. Rather than I'm just gonna, you know, CYA, I'm gonna cover my ass, I'm gonna just do exactly what I'm told. By the way, the opposite of what a, a supervisor or a leader does, instead of giving me autonomy, is he gives me bureaucracy. You know, here are rules, here are policies, here are yes. procedures, and this is you follow them. One of the things that I found in one of my later studies was when I asked the question, what's the most important quality that you see in other people? And I gave six types of people. I gave your boss, your employees, your peers, a salesperson trying to sell you something, your government representative, and your spouse. Mm-hmm. And I asked, what's the most important quality? Number one was trustworthiness, 61.2%. But not all six types answered trustworthiness in, in number one. In one of those types, it wasn't trustworthiness. When I asked leaders about their followers, 
What's the most important quality? Number one was the willingness to work hard. 47.5%, 39%, second place was trustworthiness. And, and I call this the one of our, our generation's biggest leadership failures. It actually reminds me of something that uh, Henry Ford once said. He said, why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? This is, <laughs> leaders are still thinking that way. So we got you know autonomy or a bureaucracy. We got accountability versus CYA. Then on the horizontal level between you and me, people at the same level, we have the ability and willingness to hold a constructive disagreement, not a yeah. destructive one and not the politically correct one. You know, the one when you have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the <laughs> meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. So I found that those are the components of this uh, model. And I went to meet. So now we're past the time. And I know I'm sure that you're going to ask me what makes you decide to leave a corporate position and start your own business again. Yes. But before I get to that question, yeah. so I, I went to someone who was going to be a, a later client, and uh, I started asking questions around this model. They didn't have any of the positive components, no autonomy, no accountability, no ability to hold a constructive disagreement. They had all the negative components, high bureaucracy and formalization, high CYA culture, politically correct or destructive disagreements, just not constructive ones. And, and at that point, the researcher in me takes over and goes, why? Why does that happen? And, and as I dig into that, the more I peel that onion, what I find is leaders don't give their followers uh, autonomy because they don't trust them. Yes. Employees don't follow their leaders. They, they do just CYA because they don't trust that their leaders are going to give them the, the ability to try things. We're not holding a constructive disagreement because we have a lower level of trust. In fact, in another study that I did, I found that our avoidance of constructive disagreement, thinking that it's unproductive, avoiding it altogether, we are 10 times more likely to think that way in a low-trust environment than in a high-trust environment. Wow. So at that point, by the way, the book Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss, was at the editors at the time. I came home thinking, man, I just stepped off over something. Trust. Trust is the foundation. And what I realized was when I was helping companies, whether as an employee or helping companies from the outside, build innovation, this is like starting to build a building from the second floor. You yeah. don't start with the second floor. The first floor is culture. Yes, of course. But the foundation is trust. Trust. I when love that. When you have trust, you have the right culture. You have the right culture. You have innovation. You have innovation. You have the financial results you want to get. But it all starts with trust. So I, this was the first time, Yuval, this was the first time I ever wrote about trust. It was a six-page chapter called Building Trust. That was the first time I started developing a mathematical model of wow. trust, and uh, which has evolved since then uh, quite significantly. The book came back from the editor. I slapped that six-page <laughs> on it. Never went back to the editor, so all the typos and, and grammatical errors are in those six pages. And that's when my journey started with trust. I would add just one more thing, and that is I started doing research. At some point, I hit this fork in the road. What do I do? I, I spent many years, I, I would say I spent decades in the area of innovation, and all of a sudden, there's this trust thing what do I do? Do I stick with innovation? Do I switch to trust? 
So I asked 20 of my closest friends and family members, what do you think I should do? Do I stick with innovation or do I shift to trust? 19 out of 20, 19 out of 20 said stick with innovation. So I shifted to trust. That's exactly what I would have done. (laughs) That's a good point. So you started your own business. What, you know, what, what was that business that you started? Or or why? (laughs) Or why? So, you know, I I turned 50, January of 2015, I turned 50, which would be very consistent with being eight at 1973. But uh, so I turned 50 and all of, all of a sudden the, the R word comes to mind, retirement. What would I do in retirement? At that time, I'm a vice president of corporate strategy for a, a public technology company. And I hit 50 and I'm starting to think about what I'm going to do and realizing I'm not going to be staying at home and watching TV, TV all day long. What do I want to do? Well, there are three things I love doing. I love researching. I love teaching and talking and educating, and I love writing. But wait, people actually do that for a living. (laughs) So I started researching and I joined the National Speakers Association, which sounds so much better when I say that I'm now part of NSA. (laughs) But uh, although I wanted to, at some point I called my business Corporate Innovation Academy. Yes. That's CIA. funny. I love that. I CIA. I love <laughs> so that. So I created a logo that looked like the CIA logo. But anyway, so I'm. Uh, I decided I'm going to leave, and by October first, I was on my own. I started the business and realized that I'm miserably failing, and there is no way back. Wow. We leave it at that. You can't leave it at that. How do you leave it at that? Uh, we continue. This is this is how you get another episode for a podcast. Another You'll episode. Pick it of up podcast. This is how uh, all the TV shows. You, you, mean, you want JR an open loop? You want you want an open loop? Okay. All right. So let's let's continue on because I really want to get to trust. So since we're speaking of trust, which is the foundation of our lives, right? I think that we need to go back to the basics and understand trust itself. So what is trust? Well. So the first thing you do is, if you realize that you're in the topic of trust, uh, then uh, is uh, let's find dictionary definitions for trust uh, that are completely useless. (laughs) So it's amazing how much money we spend on dictionaries that give you such completely useless uh, definitions for trust. And then I started reading a lot of research that was done and a lot of definitions that go back to many, many years, many, many decades ago. Uh, And I I can't find that I agree with any one definition until I came up with my own definition. Here is my definition. Trust is the level to which you're willing to give control over something you have to another person expecting them to minimize the negative consequences. Wow, that's great. It's funny, I I want to talk about that. There's definitely something here, and that's a great definition. So Let's shift a little bit on trust and the military. So I'm sure you know who Simon Sinek is. Yes. He spoke about performance versus trust in uh, Navy SEAL 6 Navy organization. SEAL. Yep. And now you've been one of the best, you've, you've actually been in one of the best military organizations on the planet yourself in Israel. So I'd like to get your take on his findings. So when he asked the SEALs how they picked the guys that go on SEAL Team 6, which is the best of the best of the best of the best, right? They drew him a chart, okay? 
And you're going to love this because I'm sure you know this, but I want to get your take on it. So on the x-axis, they referenced trust and that reference, how trustworthy are you off the battlefield? Can I trust you with my money or my spouse, right? And then on the y-axis, I, I believe I remember, they looked at performance. How trustworthy are you on the battlefield? Can I trust you with my life? So here's the data, right? We know for sure, you don't need to be a, a researcher to know, no one wanted the low performer on both axes, right? Nobody, nobody wanted that. And everybody wanted the high performer on both axes. Great. But what's interesting is they would rather select someone who is a low or medium performer on the battlefield and a high performer of trust off the battlefield. They claim that the highest performers on the battlefield and low performers as a human being off the battlefield, that's what makes a toxic leader and a toxic team member. And so Simon accurately stated that in business, we care so much about the battlefield performance. That's where we're putting all our metrics and guides and, and really caring about, but almost no metrics, right? Or standards on off the battlefield trust performance, right? And since we know that an individual who have low performance is a toxic leader and a toxic team member, we face exactly what you speak of, right? Trust in leadership is correlated to creativity and performance in our organization. So this is a three-part question. I know I, I said a lot here, but I know you know this. Number one, do you agree with that assessment, Simon's assessment? Number two, have you experienced this phenomenon in organizations that you work for? And number three, if so, what advice would you give to the leadership team to make the shift over from paying more attention to on the battlefield to off the battlefield performance? Okay, so this is an excellent question. And you know that there is a definition, a bad question is a question I don't have an answer to, a good question is a question I do have an answer to. An excellent question is a question for which I have recorded a podcast episode, uh, released a blog article, an article that got published in quite a few places so far. Excellent question. Excellent question, <laughs> then. So, and I actually commented on uh, when Simon Sinek uh, posted that, uh, that video, I actually commented on that because I have issues with it. I, I disagree. Okay. I, I just, uh, I, I disagree. And uh, I passionately disagree. And I'll give you why. I'll tell you why. So okay. he, he says, and you can imagine how many times I watched that, that piece of video. Um, you know, the here performance is how much I trust you with my life. And here off the battlefield, the trust is how much I trust you with my money and my wife. Yes. Uh, the, these are his words. And you know that, that the Navy SEAL, said, uh, SEAL team said, uh, we would rather have someone who is medium or even low performance on the battlefield Compare uh, as long as they have high performance or high trust yeah. off the battlefield. I am sorry, I don't know who he talked to. I'll tell you one thing, Yuval. If I'm the sniper that has your back on the battlefield and yep. I'm the most trustworthy person off the battlefield, you can trust me with your money, with your life. You just can't trust me to hit anything from a range of <laughs> 300 yards with an M110. I don't know how much you should trust me. I don't know how much you should trust a pilot that crashes only one in a thousand landings. <laughs> you, 
you know, would you board a plane? I mean, he's completely, completely trustworthy off the battlefield. You can give him a million dollar and knows that he's going to give it back to you. It's just that, you know, and, and it's really only marginal. One in a thousand landings, he's going to crash the plane. Do you trust him as your pilot? How do you feel, by the way, about a surgeon with a higher than average patient mortality rate in his operating room that's completely trustworthy outside of the operating room? Not so much, huh? Yeah. I think that what Simon Sinek did was he looked at those things as being on one dimension, and they're not. Mm -hmm. To me, trustworthiness, and we're now kind of going into my model of trustworthiness, trustworthiness is made of six components. This is my model. Yeah, six tell us about that. I, I re I'm really interested in that. Go ahead. Yeah. Six components. Three of them are who you are, and three of them are what you do. Who you are, that's your reputation. That's your brand. This is, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, if you don't know who he is, he's a very famous <laughs> astronaut. Uh, he said that your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Yes. You know, that's your reputation. I, I read something, I don't remember who said that, your reputation enters the room before you do. <laughs> so uh, this is made of three components. It's not an aggregate. It's actually the, uh, uh, what are we, the geometric average. So the uh, cube, uh, cube root of multiplying the three. Competence, personality compatibility, and symmetry and fairness. Mm. Those are the three components. If you have zero competence, I mean, this is essentially what Simon Sinek was telling you. If you have zero competence or very low competence, but very high, let's call it personality compatibility, really what he calls uh, trust is really, to me, is only one component, the personality compatibility. Mm -hmm. That's the sniper that can't hit anything from 300 yards. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I wouldn't even be willing to be your sniper not knowing what I know about hitting from, yeah. from that distance and way, way longer than that. So you have to multiply them. And if you're low on any one of them, you can't be trusted. I wouldn't trust a sniper in my team that can't hit anything. I'm, I mean... J just imagine it's the middle of the night. We're we're about to enter. You, you wanted to go back to military service. You're yeah. about to enter a building deep in enemy territory where you know that that they hold hostages. Terrorists are holding hostages. You left the sniper 300 yards behind. He's aiming at an open window. Somebody shows up through that window. He better take that one out with the first bullet, not the second one, not the third one, the first yeah. bullet, because otherwise there are grenades dropping on us. You want to tell me that you're okay with that sniper being low performance? But, but uh, so you multiply those three things. The reason you take the cubic root of them is so that if you if they're all like 0 0.5, 0 0.5, 0 0.5, the cubic root of multiplying 0 0.5 three times is 0 0.5. <laughs> That's a reason for it. Anyway, yes. if, if you look at, uh, by the way, my biggest book on trust is actually called the Book of Trust. The Book of Trust, yes. And it is now in third edition. Uh, and with 550 pages, this is the most comprehensive book ever written about trust. But enough about me. Uh, <laughs> the reason I say this is because there is an appendix in that book where I actually explain the mathematical model.
Yeah. And I, I admit that very, very few people care about that. But in, in case you do, it is in the appendix in that book. So uh, these are the three components. Competen- competence and personality compatibility do not come at the expense of one another. They don't. The, the, I, I again, I don't know which Navy SEAL team he really talked to. Was it SEAL Team Six? Heck, doesn't matter which te- SEAL team. Doesn't have to be a SEAL team. Would anybody trust a sniper that's not very good? Would anybody trust a pilot that can't land a thousand out of a thousand? So where do they correlate? There's got to be some correlation between personal off the the the, the battlefield trust. And the on the battlefield trust. So there's got to be some correlation. So tell me what your thoughts are there. So uh, actually, you brought something very interesting. When I, whenever I do my workshops, I start with the part which talks about what trust is. And, and I already told you my definition. But I take them through eight laws of trust that I saw, uh, that I observed over the years. Eight laws. And... Um, you know, as we're recording this uh, on a Monday, this coming Sunday, I'm going to give my second TED Talk. And the topic of the TED Talk is the relativity of trust. And really, the the thing that comes out of it is that trust is relative. And I'll tell you more about that. So if you look at the eight laws, the first one is that trust is continuous. You know, trust is not binary. It's not I trust you, I don't trust you. It's how much do I trust you? And so there is a certain level of trust. And, and, and by the way, if I go back into the philosophy, my philosophy of trust, trust compensates for fear. Mm. You have fear. Fear, by the way, is your subjective interpretation of actual risk, objective risk. You are in objective risk. Some people fear that risk more. Some people fear that less. But you need to balance that fear with trust so that you'll go ahead with something. Wow. Maybe you trust yourself. Maybe you trust God other people, other things, whatever it is, you need to compensate for that fear. Otherwise, you're not moving forward. You feel danger. You need to feel safe. In order to feel safe, you need to feel more trust than you feel fear. So it's not necessarily a I trust you or I don't trust you. It's a certain level of trust. Yeah, Trust is also contextual. You know, the, the pilot, do you need to trust the pilot as a surgeon? Not so much. You need yeah. to trust them as a pilot. Uh, trust is personal. This, this is a key thing, and this is where I'm going to focus uh, my TED Talk, which by the time your episode comes out, the TED Talk should be uh, maybe still being edited, but should be up and running uh, very quickly. Wow, that's uh, awesome. And the TED, uh, so trust is personal. And, and one of the examples I'm going to give there is, are you a procrastinator? You wait for the last minute? Is it bad? Some people think that, you know, you hear the word procrastinator and you go, oh, that's a bad thing. Procra- being a procrastinator is a bad thing. Uh, if you're a procrastinator, you have more time to get new ideas. You have more time to ask people. You have new information that didn't exist before. Schedules change. Projects get canceled. There are good things about being a procrastinator. Yeah. But if you are not a procrastinator, If you're somebody who stresses over deadlines, would you trust the procrastinator that's working with you on the same project? Mm -mm. No. No. But if you are a procrastinator yourself, you don't care. Trust is personal. The same thing 
and this this is the big message, uh, you know, the idea worth sharing that's going to come out of that TED talk, and that's the same things that you will that you will do that may cause some people to trust you will cost will cause other people to distrust you because trust is relative. You know, it's really interesting because you're mentioning this, and I'm thinking of John C. Maxwell. So okay. John C. Maxwell, the leadership guru, right, speaks about the five levels of trust, uh, of leadership, sorry. Leadership. And the first level, which is the lowest level, is I'm your boss, do what I need you to do. And they're like, yes, boss, I'm going to do what, what I, you need me to do. And the CYA. Fifth, CYA, exactly. And then, the, and then the fifth level, which is the highest level, is absolutely untrust. They have to trust that not only are you going to take care of them, but you're going to lead them to where they want to go, right? So that's at the top, top level, and there's multiple levels in between. But what's interesting, and what he said is what you're talking about contextual, is that no one, no leader in the entire world is at one level. They're at all five levels at all times. Because when somebody comes into the organization, they don't trust them yet. They're still level one. Somebody's been there for a while, they're level five, and then everyone in between. So it's really funny. And that kind of goes to my next question, which is kind of, I, I think it's similar, but you said that 10% of what you hear is true and 100% is true in perception. So since we're speaking of perception, what does that mean? What's that statement mean? And why did you say it? Well, actually, I didn't say it. Uh, Tom Capizzi, the VP of HR in PCTEL, when we used to do our offsites, uh, he said that. And I thought that was that's one of those quotes that I will always remember. Because here's the thing. Your trust or, or distrust of another person depends on what you think of them. But you may not know everything. You may not ever know everything because, frankly, and this is something that I tell people, what, it, what happens, you know, the, I'm, I'm taking it from the area of uh, uh, videography. Like, for example, look, look at my background here. See how clean it is? If the camera would zoom out, you'd see how messy it is. Yes. The thing is that whatever happens one inch outside of the frame never happened. Mm. So what you think of me might be 10% real, but 100%, that's your perception of me. And that does guide and educates your, your level of trust in me. And it is my responsibility not only to do the right things, but to make sure that you have the right perception. Now, I'm not advocating to creating a perception that's not right, a perception that's not aligned with reality, but it is my responsibility to make sure that your perception is correct, not only what you know is yeah. correct. And that's, and that's the funny thing that I see a lot in human beings. This is the truth. I know this. It's my God. It's your God. It's my political party. It's what I, and, and it's so funny because it is so, it's perceived through their lives and where they were born and how they were raised and what they were taught. It's just, it's just, humans are very interesting as you might imagine as a researcher. So trust is a double-edged sword, right? On one hand, Trusting someone allows us to work with them, right? Well, but it also makes us vulnerable, right? To that person. It means that our success, like you said with the sniper, right? Depends on their integrity, performance, and reliability. How do we trust others and not hold back because 
we're not 100% sure of their intentions. Well, intention is only part, and, and I call it part of that personality compatibility. There, there are two parts to, to the answer. The first one is, first, you need to understand the, uh, once you understand the model, you know what to look for. Uh, you know what to look for if you take, for example, personality compatibility, which I found to be the probably most uh, impactful on uh, the the three of the three components of who you are. Eighty six percent correlation with uh, trustworthiness in in one of my surveys. You need to be able to see what the other person values, and what is the priority that they give those values. Uh, and, and as those change, you know, whether it's they, they give a certain value, but they give it a lower priority, then, you know, if it's high priority for me, then then we have a problem. Yeah. But the other part is, you know, th- there is, a, I'll give you the sixth law of trust. Trust is reciprocal. And, and when I say the trust is reciprocal, we typically think of it as I trust you, therefore you trust me. No, that's actually not true. Uh, you may trust me, and I may not trust you, and vice versa. Yeah, doesn't matter. The, the the your trust in me is a product of your willingness to trust people and my trustworthiness. So uh, it's asymmetrical. So it's not the reciprocity of trust is not you trust me, I trust you. We all know that if I am trustworthy, then you will trust me. But and and this is something that uh, again I do in when I give a keynote. I'm actually giving one tonight. Uh, I tell them about my daughter, Shira. When Shira stood up for the first time, uh, she realized she can stand. So, you know, being the explorer that she is, she said, what's the next thing I'm going to try? Oh, I'm going to try moving my feet. And she realized she can walk. Ooh, what do you think was the next thing that she tried after she realized that she can walk? She tried running. What do you think happened the first time she tried running? She fell. She fell down. And what was the first thing that she did when she fell down? She first looked at me. She looked at me to get clues as to, did what happen right now? Is this a bad thing, a good thing? It doesn't matter or whatever. And based on my response, if my response would be, <gasps> then she would start crying, obviously. If my response would be, get up, keep going, then she would get up and keep going because apparently nothing terrible had happened. Trust and trustworthiness works this way as well. It's not only that if I'm trustworthy, then you will trust me. But if I trust you and I show you that I trust you, then you will behave in a trustworthy na- in a trustworthy way because otherwise you will feel cognitive dissonance in your head. Wow. It feels that. terrible to know that somebody trusts you and you know you don't deserve that trust. Mm. So what you do, it's funny, but the easiest way is to earn that trust. So now you're going to behave in a trustworthy way more than you did before. By the way, it works if I distrust you and I show you you that I distrust you. And I wrote about that in an article and in a podcast episode uh, where I said how to kill employee trustworthiness. All you have to do is show them that you don't trust them. And you know what? After a while, they're going to go, "Why why do I even bother being trustworthy if they don't trust me anyway? So I'm not going to be trustworthy anymore. Wow. So, uh, you know, for a leader, here's my advice. You can start with zero trust and have the other person behave, earn your trust. You can start with 100% trust 
and get that trust abused? Yeah. I, I'm not advocating for any of them. Ask yourself, what do you know about the other person? What can you, how, what is the level of trust that you currently feel? Go a little above it. I call it start with trust. Mm-hmm. Go a little above it. And seek, test the waters out a little bit. Test, yeah. yeah. Let them feel that you trust them more than maybe they think they earned because they, it will increase their trustworthiness. Maya Angela said, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. But I think you're taking it a little bit further. Test them at different intervals and see how they behave. I think the, the way I take this is that this goes back into the trust and trustworthiness are dynamic. You're assuming that a person's trustworthiness level is fixed and it's not. You actually have the ability to influence another person's trustworthiness. You do, yes. By the fact that you act towards them, you, you show them that you trust them or you show them that you distrust them you will affect their trustworthiness. There's nothing better than to end with a Maya Angelou quote. My last question on every episode is, who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Who did I have to stop being? Well, I think this goes back into, uh, remember at some point I kind of dropped this uh, little teaser uh, where I said, uh, I, right off out of the bat, I failed. Yes. I failed. And, uh, you know, wh- whatever I was doing, I-, I was just not successful. And um, the thing that I have let go of was waiting for immediate results. Mm. And this is kind of what what we I think we started at the beginning talking about the overnight success, right? Uh, and and you know I I, I watched the Gary V uh, YouTube. Uh, I watched it. I can't tell you how many times, uh, but there is no such thing as overnight success. No, uh, it takes passion. Mm-hmm. It takes focus, and it takes hard work. And what I have let go of is waiting for an immediate result of anything that I do. And what I started doing is focused on do those three things. Do only what I'm passionate about. When I'm not passionate about something, I drop it. This is it. If I can't get passion over it, I drop it. And and this is how I dropped everything other than, than trust. You know, today... Okay, you know, I, today I, when when I am where I am, I I feel a lot more comfortable. Just you know, the other day somebody reached out to me and said, "Can you do this for us?" And I said, "Well, that's not my focus anymore." So yeah. I'll, I'll give you other names. Where I don't know, ten years ago, I would have just jumped on it. Of course, I will. I, I, yeah. I'll do whatever you need. Yeah, not, not anymore. So if I'm not passionate about it, I drop it. The second thing is my focus. When I focus on something, it is 100% focus. It's 110% focus. No left and right. This is what needs to be done. And, and my experience showed that it really takes time and it takes hard work. Yes. Uh, one of the things, you know, when I look at speakers, at, at people who are entering the speaker, and that, that might be a good note to, uh, uh, to your viewers, to your listeners. 
I often see a lot of new speakers that come in. They they have this 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 day job, uh, corporate job maybe, and they go, you know, I'm I'm going to become a speaker and I'm going to start speaking because I'm really good at it. And they might, they may be good at it. Uh, and when I get enough revenue from this speaking thing, then I'm going to drop my daytime job and and this is what I'm going to do full time. Yeah. Well, so I asked them something very simple: Are you willing to commit? to have to spend one hour every night after work, one hour every night on a weekday to build your business, build your speaking business, whether it's to post things, write, record, video, whatever. Yeah. One, one hour every night. Well, you know, so it's, it's kind of hard to ask for every <laughs> night. Wait, on top of it, every weekend, five straight hours. I want five straight hours every weekend. Well, that's going to be a problem because, you know, I have a family and, and I want to spend time with them. This is my my off time. This is my relaxed time, right, from work. From I said, play with me, you know, work with me. Let's say that you are. You're willing to do that one hour every night. You're willing to do that five hours, those five hours every weekend. That's 10 hours a week. I'm going to give you two weeks off every year. That's 500 hours every year. You know when my business turned to when I realized it was going to be successful? wasn't successful yet. Mm-hmm. It was going to be successful. When? 12,000 hours. Now, I started talking to other speakers and other entrepreneurs, and I started asking them the same question. How long did it take? How many hours? And we, you know, we sat over the phone and started doing the math to calculate. The numbers were anywhere between 7,000 and 35,000. Let's take 7,000, which was the lowest number. It was an outlier by being the lowest number I ever got from anybody. 7,000 hours at 500 hours a a year. This is going to take you 14 years before you realize your business is going to be successful. Now, let me ask again. Are you willing to spend one hour every night, five hours over the weekend? That's not enough. It's not enough. I was working 80 hours a week. I still work more than 60 hours a week. Yep. It takes hard work. It, it so does. Yeah. You ask what I'm giving up and what I uh, was taking on. I was giving up the expectation to do something and get immediate results, to not have to work uh, hard by working smart. I work smart, but I also work hard. Working smart, just like, performance yeah, yeah, versus exactly. trust. Yeah, yeah. It's there is no work smart versus work hard. You got to do both of them. Yes. So what I took on, passion, focus, hard work. Yoram, you're an inspiration to me, for sure. And Thank I'm you. and I know from many many seven hatters. I work hard. I've been working hard and I see the success that comes from working hard. And I know that that's what you've been doing for so many years, and that's how you were able to accomplish so much. So tell the seven hatters, what is Yoram up to? I know the TED Talk, that's awesome. I can't wait to, to listen to, to watch it. What else, and how could they reach you? Well, first of all, just <laughs> really know how to spell my name, Yoram, <laughs> Y-O-R-A-M, Solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N. Google it. Go to the website, YoramSolomon.com. Find me on LinkedIn at YoramSolomon. Find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter, on Instagram. It's all Yoram Solomon. Um, 
my books, you can go to Amazon and find Yoram Solomon. It's not 700 books. It's only 16. By the way, <laughs> uh, two weeks 16. ago, accidentally, I wrote my 17th book. That's a story <laughs> by itself. But um, you, you can find my, my books. You can find my podcast, The Trust Show. You can actually, uh, uh, if you're watching this on a video, you can see thetrustshow.com. Uh, and uh, that, that's a podcast as, uh, as well as articles and blogs. Yoram, I'm going to have you back for sure. You're incredible. What a great conversation. I know it took a little bit longer than my usual uh, podcast, so I hope everybody's listening till the end because there's so many nuggets and so much wisdom coming from someone that I'm calling Moses. And I'm calling you Moses because it seems like God puts a burning bush you know, and tells you stuff ahead of time as you're eight years old and growing up with innovations and insights that the rest of us don't know about. So. Yoram, thank you so much for gracing us on the Seven Hats. Yuval, thank you for having me. I have to admit that you asked me questions that, that nobody had asked me in, in decades. Uh, you made me think about things that I haven't thought about in, in many, many years, and, and I thank you for that. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yoram. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And here's my takeaway. Why do we join organizations and tribes? We do so because we share a common belief and strive to make a positive difference to that organization and its members. No matter the organization, faith-based, military, government, family, or business, they're all held together by one common thread, trust. Yoram has his definition. He says trust is the level to which you're willing to give control over something you have to another person expecting them to minimize the negative consequences. This definition made me realize that Yoram is 100% accurate in his depiction. A military squad must trust that everyone in the unit will execute at the highest level to ensure victory and reduce the negative consequences of death. The same goes to business teams. Leaders and management must trust that their subordinates will execute tasks, minimizing the chances of errors and mistakes. That is why I believe managers don't delegate more often. They simply don't trust that their team will complete the job as well as they would normally have done it themselves. Wouldn't it be nice if trust was a fundamental character trait we all work on daily? Imagine if everyone was the same at work, at home, and everywhere else, and didn't pretend to be someone they're not. We need more trustworthy people in our lives who are reliable, responsible, accountable, and resourceful. Now, wouldn't that be a glorious day? I want to thank Yoram once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.